Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back to another great episode of Market Impact Insights. We are approaching the end of May. The year is flying by. We've had a recent series. We focused a lot of conversations in the area of sales and marketing optimization, and we're going to continue that today of really thinking about both from a technology and from a process, from a leadership perspective, how do we get more from our teams in terms of sustainable sales growth? And we have a passionate expert uh, who is ready to talk about this um, very, very relevant topic. Joel Stevenson is the CEO of Yesware, a leader in sales productivity software. Joel has a really impressive business background, leadership background. He was the GM and founder of Wayfair's business to business division, which he grew to several hundred millions of dollars in revenue. He also has previous sales and marketing roles at Ariba, Innovus, and Verizon. So he's bringing a business and a leadership background. He's bringing a C-suite perspective, and we're going to talk about sales optimization, the partnership with marketing, and just best practices in leadership. Joel, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I, I want to start out uh, and really looking back uh, as you reflect on your career path, what originally fueled your passion? One, just learn more about technology and help utilize technology to help drive more effective and efficient sales growth. Yeah, I think well, I've always been, um, I was always been interested in in technology. I remember when I was a kid uh my mom used to work at a school and and part of the deal was they could take like the apple 2c computers home over the summer um so i remember you know in the early days messing around with some of that stuff and 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 getting into into a lot of that um and so i've I've always had an interest in technology i I, you know one of my biggest regrets actually was not doing engineering as an undergrad um because i think mostly i just wasn't disciplined enough i probably would have failed out um but uh yeah, I've always had an interest in technology and it's the sort of thing where I think generally speaking, for most of my sales career, I was one of the younger people on the team. And, you know, I think oftentimes um, younger folks have a you know a little bit more of a tendency to adopt new technologies and, and try new things. And so it's always been uh, part of what I've done. I mean, I, I was part of, you know, very early CRM implementations in mm-hmm. the 90s. Yeah. Um, and it just kind of grew up with all that stuff. And so that's always been um, a go-to for me is how do we use technology to increase sales productivity? And that was a big part of what we did at Wayfair uh, on, the, on the B2B sales side to make that so successful. So it was exciting to be able to kind of move from a buyer of tech to a, a seller of that tech um, at, at Yesware here more recently. Yeah. And of course, uh, huge advances in technology. And we're in really interesting times in terms of the macro business environment, for sure. From your perspective, Joel, what makes today's sales environment so much more challenging than maybe even 10 or 15 years ago? 
Yeah, it's um, you know, I think that it's the it's the noise factor is so high now. Uh, I mean, if you were to go back, you know, a little over ten years ago to Yesware's founding, there were a high volume of of emails that were being sent, but they were mostly marketing emails. And so, if you as a salesperson started to send out a lot of one to one emails, and then you started to use you know, automated tools to do more of that, like, you know, our, our campaigns tool or there were, you know, a number of other people, you know, sort of eventually emerged on the scene to do a lot of that stuff. Like it was pretty effective in those early days because, you know, people weren't sort of trained to expect that even if the email came from you and looked personal, it maybe wasn't that personal. Uh, so you could, you could really get a lot done there. And some of those early, uh, early tactics like the, uh, I forget the name of the bug, it was called predictable revenue, where it's like you basically, you know, spam every, the way that you did ABM as a rep is you spam like a hundred people in the company and say like, can you point me to the right person? And one of those hundred people does, and you sort of get to the right person. And uh, I, I think th- those were, those are good tactics um, in the early days. And now I think the challenge is everybody gets so much volume that cutting through all of that is very, very difficult. And so I think, you know, reps have to be, especially on the front end, you know, a little bit more creative than they used to be just to, to be able to cut through, uh, you know, all of that noise. And of course, amplifying that noise too is um, you've got more channels or more sources of that traffic. I mean, not just your, your Outlook inbox direct emails, but you've got stuff coming in through uh, the social media, the networks, the LinkedIn messaging. So it just feels like um, it can be a really crowded space. And the question is like, how can you really break through with so much competing noise? Yeah. Well, I think in, in some ways it's, um, it's a little bit back to basics and a lot of things where, uh, you know, to the extent that you can work a network to get a warm introduction to somebody that that's of course going to give you a much better chance uh, in, in days where we sort of have our guard up maybe a little bit more than, than what we used to. I mean, I, I just think about like when I started my career in selling, you know, we, we had, you know, sort of whole educational modules on like how you work, work the switchboard to get to the person. So like, Oh, how do you, how do you overcome like the switchboard gatekeeper and then the admin assistant gatekeeper and, you know, like call the person, like start calling them every five minutes at 5am and then figure out when they change their voicemail. And so then, you know, that's when they can, like, well, there was, you know, a million tactics of these things. And, um, you know, it used to be that people used to pick up their business phone. I mean, I, I remember doing that. And now, especially after COVID, there are very few business phones out there. I think, especially if you're selling That's anybody right. in, in knowledge work, it's maybe a little bit different for folks that have to answer the, the phone as, as part of their business, like a service industry or something. But, uh, but for the most part, now you're, if you're, if you're calling somebody, you're calling their cell phone and you know, the, the countermeasures are much better there. And so, you know, you get marked as, sp- as spam, or if, if you're not in somebody's address book, they won't open it. Or, you know, I'll sometimes put people through the Google assistant and you have to kind of, you know, state your name and in why you're calling, but before, before I'll, I'll pick up the phone. And so the, like the, the countermeasures are much, much stronger, I think. And so, you know, warm intros are great. And then the other thing is, in, in my view, to really try to up your game in terms of the business value that you're going to deliver and whatever message it is. And so, you know, first of all, do whatever you can to make it seem like, you know, you're not a, uh, you know, you're, you're not an automated message that they're, that you actually had thought into this particular communication. And then how much value can you, you know, can you deliver in, in, in that email? How much homework have you mm-hmm. done? If somebody mm-hmm. reads this, are they going to say like, oh, this is actually somebody that I should talk to because I'm going to learn something, you know, even before you get into a, into a selling process. I think it, it's more of those type of stuff that, 
you know, maybe doesn't scale quite as well, but if you're good about using, you know, all the other tech that's available to you, so you can free up more time to do that type of work, then I, I, it's possible. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and we want to dive in a little bit to email strategy here in a little bit. But before we do that, the other interesting part of your career trajectory, you know, you started out with sales, you have uh, the great experience in terms of uh, direct uh, customer interface, but now um, having been a CEO, and that brings with it a whole nother set of responsibility and, and key learning what do you think really separates exceptional leadership when you think about it from a CEO perspective? And, and are there some things you've learned along the way in your journey that now you're taking with you and saying, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to incorporate this in uh, for even better impact going forward. Yeah. Um, it's a couple of thoughts. I mean, I, I don't, I don't remember who wrote this. It might, it might've been, Peter Drucker, um, but I, I think it was him. And I, his sort of comment was, well, you know, what you're really buying in, in, in management or leadership is judgment. And the most important thing to have as a manager and a leader is good judgment. And if you have that, then there's, you know, there, there's a lot, you know, there, there's a lot of things that, that can be done. And that's, that's a very solid base to, to build from. And so like when I'm, you know, trying to figure out who, you know, I'm going to have on my team and work with that are going to be managers and leaders for me. That's something that I try to discern. It's difficult to discern, but particularly, you know, if you haven't worked with a person for a while, but, but that, that to me is, is sort of the, the number one, uh, quality, if you will, is, is someone that, that has good judgment. And then the other, the other thing that always sticks with me from a leadership perspective is there's, um, this book called Leadership is an Art by um, uh, the author's escaping me at the moment. It's like he, he was the uh, one of the early Herman Miller guys, uh, Max something. It'll, it'll come to me um, in a minute. But what, what he said was, you know, the, fir- the first job of a leader is to define reality. The last job of a leader is to say thank you. And in between those two things, a leader is a servant and a debtor. And. that just seems to be, you know, quite a, quite a good encapsulation to me. And I think one of the things that I've had to figure out in my CEO journey was the, really the importance of the defining the reality part about like what good looks like and what we're trying to do and the direction that we're trying to go. And if those things are not really clear uh, and are sort of repeated often that it, you know, it's, it's very difficult to sort of get everybody going in the same direction uh, without those things. Yeah, you brought up judgment being this key dimension, right? In terms of wanting to to really screen for that. I'm curious: is have you found that through an interview process, where you've had to make those hiring decisions, that you try to get at that by um, having them go through some uh, exercises, you know, in terms of giving them a problem and then seeing how they would approach it? So, or is it more just them uh, bringing in and talking about their experience and wanting them to talk in terms of where they exercise good judgment? I'm curious how you try to call that out, right? When you're making those decisions. Yeah. What I've generally done uh, is I've just tried to go deep with somebody on some subject. Uh, So whatever it was, um, you know, that maybe something they had on their resume or, or something that, that we talked about really just try to keep, keep asking questions, you know, kind of like a, you know, you would as a, as a good salesperson. So you just Mm -hmm. like, you keep digging and you keep digging and you keep digging about all the factors in the situation about like what was going on and what did you know and how, what'd you think about this? And, 
you know, what about that? And, and why not this? And, you know, then afterwards, like, what did you learn? And so if you can really start, like start to dig through um, and, you know, and it's not usually like the first, second, it might even be like the fourth, fifth or sixth question, you know, repeated question in a particular area that you have to get to before you really start to, to, to unearth how the person truly thought about the situation or maybe how they, they, they kind of think about things in general. So that, that, that's what I've found. Um, and you know, I, just like everybody else, I'm not perfect at hiring. I've made plenty of hiring mistakes over the years. Um, I've also had the benefit of, you know, being in organizations that are pretty dynamic and have a lot of new people coming in that are ambitious. And so I've also had the ability to sort of promote from within oftentimes. And in, in that scenario, it's like, you've already, you've been with a person, you've observed them over longer periods and you've seen, you've, you have a very similar set of knowledge that, that that person does. And so you can, those, those ones are often on the judgment dimension much easier. Now there might be skill gaps or there might be other things that have to be, you know, learned and refined where, you know, we're all growing, but, uh, but that is one benefit I think of hiring from within is you get to observe that a bit more closely. Yeah, absolutely. And so for all of us that have had to make those tough and, and critical decisions, you know, we can really relate to that. And and I'm instantly suspicious when I, if I've ever heard a claim that said, I've never made a bad hire, I, my, my antenna goes up immediately, Joel, because it's like, I've made some of those too. Um, and as, as much as you put into process and I mean, inevitably, uh, you know, you're not going to have a perfect record. But then the key is you learn from that. I found like I, I took uh, from that situation, okay, what could have I done better? Could have the process uh, been better? And then, you know, use it for improvement, right? And then so you gain something, even in those situations. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people are people are complicated. You know, they're, um, they're you know, one of the... Uh, you know, the, the things that makes life great is, is your relationships with folks, but, um, but they're complicated. And it's funny, I've, 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 in a, I've been in a CEO peer group for a number of years, and it's amazing the percentage of time that we talk about people versus any other subject. It's that people is like by far the dominant uh, thing that, that we discuss as a group that people are struggling with or want to process or, you know, get a different point of view on. Yeah, the human factor is alive and well, that is for sure. And so, you started talking a little bit about um, some of the dynamics behind uh, the email uh, as a tactic, and certainly email marketing—it's it's a core part of any sort of B two B marketing mix. It's part of uh, effective sales communication, utilizing email. What do you think separates a truly great email strategy from just one that's uh, well, it's okay? And and again, where do you see a technology or tools potentially playing a role in all of that? Yeah. Well, to me, the the difference between you know so so and really good is is really just the amount of time that you're going to dedicate to test and iterating on that strategy. Um, you know, it's it's hard to get the first email right, um, particularly if you are. I mean, maybe it's a little bit different if you've got ten customers in the whole world you can sell to, and it's like extremely extremely bespoke. Then maybe that's just more about you know, getting close to that person and, and, and maybe like one incredible email or a handful of like really incredible emails or five minutes. If you're, if your universe is broader, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of prospects, that type of thing, it, it's really the, it's really the test and iterate strategy. And, you know, you can do that as an individual where you, you know, set up some, some, uh, 
some emails or a series of emails, and then you watch the metrics that are coming back, you know, how many were opened, how many got replied to, how many people opted out, how many people actually booked a meeting as a result of that. And you can then start to say, all right, well, what if I, you know, just like a good marketer would do like, well, what, mm-hmm. what if we try this? What if we try yeah. that? Like, how about if we send it at this time or that time, or we change the subject line and we change the length or we change what we're talking about, or we attach some different thing or there, there's a, you know, infinite number of variables and, um, and test and iterate is key to that. And, and the other thing that we see in this, this shows up in the, in the data, like quite clearly is that teams that adopt that type of approach, you know, tend to perform much better than teams that don't. And so if, like you think about one rep, maybe tries something and there's a little bit of an unlock that happens. If that can get shared across the whole team and now you've moved from, you know, your discovery stage to your demo stage at a slightly better rate, then that, you know, is going to benefit the entire funnel down the line. So we, so I think, you know, testing iterate number one. Um, and then if you can then in addition to just testing and iterating share with others, that's, uh, that's kind of where you want to be. Yeah. Do you see some roadblocks out there that maybe prevent, teams from doing that as much as they should be? Because I, I know from my own experience, it's the concept makes total sense, but it seems still sometimes with the pressure of time trying to just get stuff out, you tend to gravitate towards a one size fits all. So I'm just curious what you've seen out there. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, sometimes um, those of, you know, the, us in the technology space, we make things a little bit too complicated. Um, and so it could be that you actually haven't invested in tech that would start to give you some of this analytics back so you could test and iterate intelligently. So that, that could be one issue. But assuming that you've kind of made that first investment, sometimes the tech can be a barrier and just it's too complicated or uh, difficult to set up or, you know, as a vendor, we're not good enough about giving you help and, and, and really getting you, you know, kind of off to success, I, I think are, are a couple of them. And then the other one that that can be difficult is the, I sort of want to call it like the culture of the sales team where, you know, sales is a little bit, you can definitely run sales as a zero sum game where, you know, reps that have been around for a while might realize that, well, if everybody on the team really kicks ass, then that, what that probably means is that next year, all the quotas are going up. And so even though we all win, like maybe we, maybe it's better just for one person to win than for everybody to win. And, uh, that can be you know, lead to some, obviously some, you know, not ideal behavior over time. And so I think one of the, one of the challenges for the sales leader is how do you create an environment by which, you know, salespeople are still driven for individual achievement, but they're also have some interest or some, uh, you know, personal or financial investment and also the team and the company doing well, um, in addition to just them. Yeah. So you start seeing these, strategies around the sales compensation where they incorporate either it could be a business unit or maybe it's a whole company performance, right? Versus just their individual quota performance. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, or, or in some sales organizations, particularly in the tech side, you know, equity can become, you yeah. know, a, a big motivator. And so, you know, how do you get somebody to think like an owner versus think like a, you know, a mercenary? Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a really good point. And, and again, you know, you want to hopefully have thinking that is more long-term in nature than just so micro short-term, right? But you want to better support the company strategy. And in my book, The Impact Makers, Joel, I, I talk about data and you, you brought that up earlier in terms of um, access to data to help make better informed decisions, even around email uh, approaches. But, you know, with 
increase volumes of data, you know, how do you um, best harness all of that data? How do you make it interpretable, understandable, and meaningful? And then there's this whole area of data privacy. And, you know, that's now kind of this bigger issue. How do you see that uh, impacting companies that are now better able to manage or have better line of sight to more data and, and trying to drive better decisions? Yeah, well, there's, um, I guess the, you know, on the data side there, it, it, I think it, it somewhat is dependent on the, uh, uh, on the nature of your customer base. And so there's like, if we were to think of like the most permissive to the least permissive, you know, the most permissive customer bases are going to be business customer bases in the U S uh, and then, less permissive is personal because everyone's a little bit more sensitive about personal information. And then, you know, if you're, if you're selling in Europe, um, then, you know, business, uh, business is again, sort of, I would say more permissive than personal information. Um, but you really got to be careful with, with PII, um, uh, as it relates to, to, you know, uh, especially in Europe and in, in, in any of that stuff. And so a lot of, I think, you know, a lot of systems aren't really fully set up to handle that stuff. I think there's a number of companies that are doing interesting things in that area. But, you know, and if you were just starting a company today, you might you might do it with, uh, you know, with with privacy guardrails as sort of a uh, as a principle that that guides the the way that you you build your systems in, in your company. But, you know, most of us started in a, in a world that was before that. And so you know, there, there's, there's aspects of, you know, what can I do from a data government's perspective to sort of, you know, stop us from stepping in it, if you will. And then, you know, what are the set of things that I can just do from an education standpoint so that it's just everybody in the company sort of understands um, how we should handle data and what we should do and what's okay and not okay. So, you know, cause it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to systematize everything and it's hard to legislate everything. Uh, and so I think, you know, everybody understanding like the privacy principles um, and what's important, I think, is uh, is, is another good way to, to try to address some of that. But it, it's difficult. And, you know, and you see in um, in marketing, you know, the the death of third party cookies and, you know, the, the Facebook algorithm now, yeah. um, you know, having you know a little bit less power than it used to because Apple privacy policy. Like there's a lot of things that are like the rubber is really hitting the road right now. And um, in some ways, our our precision is moving backwards as marketers, which is probably the first time in history that's ever happened. Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit? So this idea of the step backward, which says that because of some of these considerations, you know, the drive for greater depth and precision, but maybe, hey, we got to let our foot off the pedal a little bit. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, you know, so you think about like, uh, let's just take Facebook as an example. So, um, you know, Facebook used to get the benefit of being on your mobile device. And if, if it was an Apple device, they got the benefit of then, you know, sort of being able to follow you around the web and, and, and the app and, and learning a tremendous amount, um, about you from the activity that you generated on your phone. Um, and then when Apple privacy policy came out, which was, you know, which was a choice. And, and when you then, uh, uh, you, you load up Facebook, you've got a choice that says like, well, do you want to share your data or do you not? And I think, I don't know, it's, it's some insane number, like, you know, 95% of the people are like, well, no, I don't want to share it. And so now, 
you know, Facebook's ability to build really specific lookalike yeah. audiences is now yeah. not as good. And so, whereas I used to be able to probably, you know, feed it, you know, hundreds or thousands of email addresses and then be able to find, you know, the, the 10 or 50,000 people that look just like that person behaviorally or demographically or, or on other means, especially, especially behaviorally, um, that's now become very difficult. And so we're going a little bit back to the world where, um, you know, you've got to have other types of tactics to try to see if you're, um, you know, to try to, to build, um, you know, ad campaigns or, or whatever that are targeted still that, that deliver the same sort of results. Whereas like, you know, a couple of two, three years ago, I mean, who's really set it and forget it uh, in many ways. And now we're a little bit back to like some of the hard work of inference and, uh, and, and trying to sort of say like, well, I don't, I can't point it. I can't draw an exact straight line to this, but it seems like this is correlated and like, can we make a case for causation? Is there some ways that we can mm -hmm. test that? Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's, it's a lot of like, you know, adding up, you know, 50 or 60% solutions versus like getting like the 99% solution handed to you. But it's, it, it, it sort of, you know, and I, I today am, you know, only sort of tangentially involved in indirect response marketing, but I, you know, I talked to a lot of people and it's like definitely made a, it's definitely uh, changed some behaviors in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Now we talked about the human factor and, and people being such a critical part of successful organizations before, and we've got so much change taking place in terms of the way that marketing and sales gets done. But when you think about the next generation of workforce that are coming into companies like yours, are there new skills that are going to really be required for those team members to be successful? Yeah. I, I mean, it's hard to believe that the generation of workers that, that are just showing up is not going to have to have a good relationship with AI and how to use those tools to their advantage. Um, you know, we're just at the early stages of it still, but, you know, for, for folks that are sort of following along closely, you can see that the type of progress that's being made now. And I just, for anybody in knowledge work, I just, I can't envision a world where a big part of your job is not using um, some form of, of large language model or, or other AI tools um, to, to improve your, your output. And I think folks that uh, are unable to do that. I mean, there, there are probably, you know, pockets of, of industry where, where maybe that won't touch, but it, at least, you know, the ones that I've traditionally been involved in, you know, sales, marketing, finance, operations, like it, it's going to, it's going to touch all of those things. And I, I, I don't necessarily know that it's going to eliminate a bunch of jobs. I, I tend to be a little bit more optimistic that it's going to create a bunch of new jobs, but it's the sort of thing where the top five or 10% of the people in that field are going to get way, way, way more productive. And so, you know, you don't really need the, the bottom performers anymore. And that, that is, that is one concern that I have is like for new people that are entering the workforce, like so much of like sales, is like so much of an apprenticeship. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, how do you show up and get that kind of, you know, apprenticeship type or tribal knowledge passed on to you. If it's like, well, now we don't hire entry level people because our senior people can do what, you know, way more um, that I think you'll see that across a bunch of different fields. And that's something as a, you know, as, as uh, professionals, we got to figure out, I think some way, some way to, to deal with that. 
It's an interesting challenge, isn't it? Because the very thing that probably more of the workers need to better understand and get comfortable with is the AI. But then this fear factor kicks in of, oh my gosh, this is going to eliminate my job. I'm at risk. And it almost drives them away from doing the very thing that they probably need to do. So it's kind of like, how do you work through that balancing act? Yeah, maybe, but I think, you know, it's one, one interesting thing is, um, uh, I was just at, uh, one of my kids' graduations early today, high school graduation and, uh, chat GPT came up in the, in the valedictorian speech, like three or four times. Um, and I think one of the teachers that gave a speech also talked about it. So I I think that like the high school kids, at least, you know, and, and I'm assuming, you know, the college kids, like, you know, I've, I've become very comfortable with this, like very, very quickly. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm maybe not quite so worried about them, um, you know, getting comfortable with the tech. I probably would have just a little bit more of like, are they going to get, you know, how do we give them the opportunities to use that also with the, you know, but with the, with the, uh, sort of first, uh, I want to say first principles knowledge that allows you to really use that effectively versus just sort of blindly, typing in prompts and, and not really understanding what you're doing, turning in papers that you don't understand, like all that right. type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The masking uh, dynamic there. Well, uh, Joel, obviously you work with and consult with lots of people. I'd like to flip this around and ask you, what's the best piece of business advice you have ever received? Well, the, um, I remember that I was um, my first, job out of college. Um, I was in the sales training program and, uh, part of what we did was we had to go shadow another rep. So we'd, you know, drive around to these sales calls and, and then, you know, we sort of like sit, it's obviously like, you're like the, you're like the fresh, you know, person, uh, that, that shows up. And the first one we ever went to was this guy's a like extremely successful real estate broker. And so, you know, the, the real estate brokers, I think they, yeah, they certainly have a, a passion for for sales and, and for selling. And I, I remember him, you know, before the meeting started, I remember him saying, he's like, he's like Joel, I'm going to give you the, the one piece of sales advice that you need, which is God gave you one mouth and two ears for a reason. There you go. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's one that's always kind of, always kind of stuck with me, um, you know, especially in sales, but I think in, you know, in all aspects of management to try to, uh, to try to listen more than you speak um, is important. Yeah, probably has really been important for you even uh, as a CEO, uh, right? In terms of how you drive culture, create a healthy culture, and how you create a, a feeling of connectedness, right, inside of your company. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That That's right. And, um, you know, it's it's a work in progress. I'm actually, you know, I'm on a little bit of a CEO break now because our company got acquired uh, recently. So, um, so it's, it's kind of been interesting to be able to take a step back and, um, uh, and reflect on that time and also watch, you know, somebody else lead. Um, uh, and, and I, I'm sort of a, you know, now more of a, more of a supporter than a leader, but the, uh, yeah, that, that, you know, knowing when to speak and when not to speak is, is such a, it's such a big thing because, you know, and it, it's hard to understand the power dynamics until you're sort of in the role for a while and that your words, you know, just by virtue of like sort of the power of the position, um, carry more meaning. And so you have to choose them a little bit more carefully. You have to choose when you say them. And then the, almost the flip side though, was, was, I think a, a challenge for me. I mean, we, every, every 
everybody and every personality has sort of a yin and a yang. And, and I think being a good listener, sometimes, um, I was a little bit slow to, to actually say, all right, well, now this is the decision and we're doing it and we're not, we're done talking about it and let's go type of thing. And, uh, and, and I just recall during my, my earlier times that, you know, things just went on way longer than they should have until I realized when the point was that I had yeah. to, that I really had to speak up and say, all right, well, we talked about it and this is what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So as you look ahead to the future, what makes you optimistic? Well, I, you know, a, a lot of things, um, you know, we're, we're, I guess, you know, we're, we're on a little bit of a, it's hard to know which way some of this stuff is going to break, but I, I tend to be, a, I tend to be more of an optimist in the long term. Uh, you know, I, I, I tend to think that AI will be a, a boon to society versus, you know, we will all become the servants of, of an AI overlord. I'm, I hope I'm right about that. Um, and then, you know, you just start to look about, look at all the, all the different things that are starting to spin up at the same time um, to create more of an abundance um, uh, in a, an abundance type of mindset. So, you know, things that we're doing around, you know, nanotechnology and quantum computing and, uh, you know, uh, manufacturing, nuclear fusion, like there, there's so much that um, that is interesting. And, and so many of these things like work together to, um, uh, work together to, uh, to accelerate all this stuff. I think, you know, the, the next, uh, the next 20 years are going to be quite interesting. Something to look forward to. Definitely. So as we wrap up the conversation, Joel, do you have any other final advice for leaders that are looking to take the performance of their teams to the next level? Well, I, I, you know, I, one, one thing that I think is, is helpful that, you know, can be difficult is, uh, you know, how, um, how candid are you with your team? You know, and there's, there's plenty of books on this, you know, radical, radical candor comes to mind, but I think, you know, one of the, one of the things you might look at is like how, how honest are the conversations that we're having? Or if you look at, you know, a book like death by meeting, like our interest, are our meetings interesting or our meetings super boring. Um, and a lot of the, the interest in it comes from, you know, real dynamic conversations where, you know, people are challenging each other and like the real issues are getting discussed and, 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 it, and but then at the end, you know, you, a decision's taken and, you know, it's a, the old Intel, um, you know, disagree and commit type of thing. I think, you know, I, I don't see that everywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that's sort of a good diagnostic you could sort of do is, you know, it's like, how, how, how honest are we being with each other? And like, how good are, good are our meetings? And if, if you have questions about either one of those, then you, you could probably get better. Yeah. Well, Joel, thanks again for taking the time to share your wisdom and your perspective on your journey uh, from being a, a great uh, sales leader and being able to drive growth into the C-suite. Uh, really, really inspiring and, um, uh, Spot on, I think, in terms of, again, getting back to the importance of people along with the technology. Thanks again for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. Enjoyed the conversation. And a reminder to everyone to please continue to give us the gift of feedback on how we can make this podcast even better. Go out, rate and review. It really does make a difference. And you can do that easily out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the leading platforms. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.